Welcome to the Storyform Podcast, where we journey together at the intersection of faith and story. I'm your host, Will Chenault, Soul Care Pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Jackson, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Let's get this conversation started. Well, hello. Today on the Storyform Podcast, I have as my guest Amy Winstead. And Amy is married to Michael, who is our college and young adults pastor here at Fellowship. But also, Amy has an extensive background in ministry. Uh, She attended Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, where she earned a master's in divinity. And she served on staff for many years at a church in Houston, Texas, where she provided pastoral care and leadership. And currently, Amy serves as a chaplain for hospice. Amy, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So you told me this was your second podcast of the week. Yeah, it is. What did you? What was the other podcast? The other podcast was, believe it or not, about grief okay. and the holidays, and which is um, what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and about just the struggles that COVID has provided for the church and the community, and how we can care for one another through this season. Right. And you were also a part of creating a resource that you talked about on that podcast. Yep, it's called Sound of Your Love, and it is a um, a service that helps connect families with other family members, especially in hospitals or hospice or nursing ho- homes who are isolated. And so um, it's just a really neat service because as a chaplain, I found out really quickly um, that the power of presence, you know, wasn't something that we could really sit with a lot and um, we were missing it and so if we didn't have the power of presence with those who were dying and those who were suffering then the sound of our voice was the next best thing Mm. and so for um, patients who are in hospitals that are confused they feel abandoned um, this service can help um, create a a stand-in i guess you can say and so you can go to soundofyourlove.com and find out a little bit more about it. So you were on the podcast uh, talking about that? Yep. Well, Amy, I want to talk to you. One of the things that we do on the podcast here is get to know each other's story and hear about your story. So let's just jump in with this. Growing up, did you want to be a chaplain? <laughs> nope. I didn't even know what one was. Okay. I wanted to be an astronaut <laughs> or a meteorologist, Okay, but found out pretty quickly after two summers of going to space camp in Huntsville and not reaching my full potential and not being able to do math in public, as Michael would say, that um, I would never be an astronaut. Okay, And the cards were not stacked for me well with meteorology either, because I would be in the basement of my home if I heard thunder. <laughs> and so... So you knew that wasn't going to be... Uh, astronaut and meteorologist wasn't going to work. That wasn't it. Okay. So. so what was the journey that led you to do what you do today, to be a hospice chaplain? I love the church from the beginning. Um, Grew up in Atlanta in an amazing church called Johnson's Ferry Baptist, where missions and ministry was an emphasis. And so at a very early age, um, I learned, you know, wherever we were, we were doing ministry. And so had that as a as the foundation. And so when I learned that <laughs> being an astronaut was not in the cards for me, um, I thought, well, it would be great to work for 
the church. Mm. Looks like a lot of fun. Mm. So loved student ministry, thought student ministry or children's ministry would be it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't really until I experienced suffering of my own as an adolescent that God really opened my eyes to see there was a lot more ministry um, than what was even within the church. And so um, that was really kind of the foundation for it. Um, And then thinking back, I love to see how God goes before us. Um, I think about my mom, who was an amazing nurse, and she worked in a nursing home when I was smaller and several hospitals through my childhood. And so my afternoons and a lot of my summer break was walking the halls of the nursing home or the hospital, volunteering, playing games, hearing stories. Um, But I got to watch my mom care for the sick and the aging with such compassion Mm. and grace. Um, I knew I wanted to be like that Mm. somehow. And so um, I wasn't afraid to be around those who are sick, Mm. and death wasn't something that necessarily was um, it was more normal because I saw it more um, being beside my mom. So, um, but for me, really, when God opened my eyes to chaplaincy, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness at the age of 12. Um, I was in and out of the hospital throughout middle school and high school. Um, dealing with a um, an illness that they didn't know a lot about, and so from hospital visitations and um, and having to be hospitalized almost monthly, my freshman, sophomore, and junior year in high school, um, new medications, FDA, you know, trials that I would be placed on, um, gosh, surgeries and. And even a feeding tube, um, I just, you know, I experienced something that not a lot of other adolescents experience. I remember feeling scared, alone, feeling that people were going on before me, that I was being left behind. Um, I faced life and death um, at the age of 18 in a way that, you know, a lot of other adolescents didn't. Um, And so it was really my senior year in high school that um, a group of doctors came together and performed an um, exploratory surgery that really ended up saving my life and allowed me to manage my illness better. And so um, the surgery was spring break of my senior year, which was just, you know, on Easter Sunday. Um, I was in the hospital, and I remember being so... um, afraid and alone, but also grieving tremendously that I couldn't be at my home church for Easter. And my dad was determined not to keep me in my room. He's like, you're not going to have a pity party. This is Easter Sunday. We are celebrating. And so they put me in the wheelchair and me and my Ivy bag um, went downstairs and led to a chapel. And I remember sitting in the chapel with I don't remember how many other families were there, but I just remember ages from infancy to my age as a teenager and um, from cancer patients to patients with COPD and other diseases that I didn't even know. And then their families were all in a room and I didn't know what was coming. I just knew there was going to be an Easter service Mm -hmm. and a chaplain walked up Mm -hmm. to the mic and shared the gospel, but it was what he shared at the end 
um, that stuck with me, mm. and it was that God doesn't waste our suffering. Mm. And so that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. I knew that God was always present. I just didn't know what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I constantly searched for a reason why this was happening. Was it because I was bad? Was it because I didn't read the Bible every day, that I didn't pray? Was it something that my parents did wrong? I remember going through a lot of those emotions and those thoughts. Um, And, you know, God allowed the surgery to happen so healing could happen. And so I was able to go to Samford University um, later on as a sophomore in college. And it was there that I continued to grow in ministry. I still thought at that point that I was going to seminary to be a student ministry, you know, Mm -hmm. do something in that. And um, it wasn't until my senior year Mm -hmm. that my my counselor said, hey, you got to do an internship. Let's get you out of the church. Mm -hmm. Let's allow you to get out of your comfort zone and do something different. And I just procrastinated. Mm -hmm. So there was only one internship available, and it was with a chaplain and um, with a inner city nonprofit hospice wow. in Birmingham. And I thought, no way, I'm not going to do hospice. That's death all the time. Mm. And so I did hospice in Birmingham for about three months and absolutely fell in love with it. Mm. And it was at that point that God gave me a passion for walking with um, patients and families um, through the valley of the shadow of death. Mm. And um, But what was even more amazing was seeing God's movement in families where reconciliation happened, mm-hmm. um, hearing stories of legacy, and sitting with people who wanted to tell their story. They don't want to be forgotten. You know, people want to know what was the meaning to all of this. Mm-hmm. And to see people um, at the very end of their life say, there's nothing else that matters but Christ. Mm. I may have worked all of my life for wealth and for luxury, and I can't take any of that. And so Christ is it. And there's just something absolutely beautiful to be sitting so in those moments. So you were captured by that uh, early on. What was it when you said, I absolutely fell in love with it? What was it? <laughs> I sat with a woman who was one of the children and the Birmingham bombing that happened in the 60s. And so her friends died in the church there in Birmingham. And um, her stories of um, meeting Martin Luther King as a child and being a part of the civil rights movement in Birmingham and reconciliation was just such a huge theme of her life. And then to meet her family and to see how her legacy just continued to be multiplied in her children and her grandchildren. And it was really neat because in her home, I was the first white person who had ever stepped through the door of her home. And so praying around her bed with her family and knowing, you know, it was just, she told me, Amy, this is a full circle moment for me. Mm. Wow. And it was just a really powerful moment. I was like, I want to be a part of this. Yeah. You know, it overwhelms me. It terrifies me. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't been around death, but in the nursing home watching my mom. Right. And I was going to do this daily. Right. You know? 
So you were being prepared as a youth and had a particular illness. Did they ever find out what the illness was? It was a viral infection that paralyzed my um, digestive tract. And so when I was a senior, I had Barrett's esophagus, and they said, if we don't do something to fix this, you will die at some point. Wow. So being in the hospital, experiencing that month in, month out, surgeries, um, the chaplain service, the chap- being in the chapel Easter Sunday, seeing your mom, uh, walking with your mom through the nursing home, being around death, it was almost like God was preparing you for this is this is what I want you to do with your life. This is calling and vocation for you. And then experiencing that in college, you had the internship that said, I, w- I want you to think outside and I'm going to put you in this particular internship. And then seeing those sacred holy moments mm-hmm. in that. Wow. Yeah, it's holy ground. Mm-hmm. It's definitely that. Yeah. So what is your, if we describe what you do, what is your everyday kind of when you're working as a chaplain was with hospice, what does that look like? Really depends on where a patient and their family are Mm -hmm. in the um, disease process, Mm -hmm. whatever the disease is that is, it is going to lead to death. Um, For some people, they have been struggling for a really long time and um, they are ready. Mm -hmm. Um, But for others, they're surprised by this illness that is going to lead to a death. And so a lot of it is just sitting and listening, asking questions to help um, somebody think about, like a question that I use really on a daily basis is, tell me how you have gotten through a hard time in your life. And then let's talk about, you know, was that something that helped you? Was it something that, you know, you want to grow more in? Um, you know, the, the word chaplain um, is a scary word for people. Mm-hmm. You know, I will have people that say, absolutely, I don't want to see a chaplain because that means I'm dying. Mm-hmm. You know, and so um, having conversations with people, you know, of we're just here to talk. Mm-hmm. We're just here to talk about feelings and emotions and fears. And let's talk. What do you think about suffering? Mm-hmm. You know, what's your understanding of suffering? What's your understanding of death? Do you fear death? Do you fear where you're going? Um, is there anything of your life that, um, you know, you're afraid would, would stop you from, you know, going to heaven? Mm-hmm. Lots of questions like that. Mm-hmm. And then more than that is just being present because right. a lot of times there are no words, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and so, uh, holding of a hand mm-hmm. or just sitting with a family. Cause when a death happens, there's nothing that I can say to make it better. Right. Just the importance of that presence. Yeah. yeah. And people aren't going to remember what we say, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. but people will remember that we're there. Yeah. So in your experience being on the front lines of this, do you believe as a culture, do you believe when, when I say as a culture, I say Western American, do you believe we value gr- the process of grief? No, Mm -hmm. we don't do it well at all. Um, You know, when a death happens in a family and then we feel like we have to be back at work in a week. Right. um, Everything we feel like has to have this really short period of time. I'm going to grieve for a week and I'm going to go on and life's going to get back to normal. Right. And it doesn't. Right. Um, 
You know, I think we don't understand a lot about grief. We may go to a book that tells us there's five stages of grief, which I wouldn't necessarily agree in for everyone Mm -hmm. because grief is very individual. It's no one fits all because every relationship is different. Mm -hmm. Even within a family, grief is different for everyone in that family. Um, So it is something we don't talk about it. Um, We don't know the words or the questions to ask. And it makes us afraid. You know, I don't want to make someone else cry if I ask a question about their loved one who has died, Mm -hmm. because I don't feel comfortable sitting in somebody else's pain. Mm -hmm. It's very, I mean, it's just, it's painful. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and what you mentioned um, about the the time frame, um, I was reading something several years ago that basically said within the U.S., most people will give about six weeks. That's what they think is the average time for grief. Yeah. And then after six weeks, you should be good, which is crazy. Yeah. It's really at that six-week mark that you realize the person you love is gone. Right. And then you're all of a sudden realizing, we call it the secondary losses. Mm -hmm. You know, that primary loss is you've lost your loved one. Mm -hmm. The secondary loss is everything that that death is going to touch. Right. You know, um, so for a woman who has lost her husband, you know, the first time that they realize they have to go do an oil change, and they've never done an oil change in their car, and the grief that sets in. Or for, you know, a sibling who has lost a brother or a sister, and the first time that you know, they have a question about why their parents are treating them the way they are. They can't go to their best friend and their sibling to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And we can go on and on Mm -hmm. and on about all the secondary losses. So it's really, again, at that six month or that six week mark that we're realizing. It's beginning to experience it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why do you think that we have such a hard time when, and and I would agree with you that what is it about our world that says we're not going to allow ourselves time and space? I mean, you think about other cultures um, mm. that may take a year, may take two years. Some cultures, even today, uh, if you're mourning a spouse, if you're a female and your husband has died, you you dress in black for a year. Yep. There is a a longer road. It, because if we grieve, it shows weakness. Mm. Yeah. You know, if we if we grieve, it means that we have to slow down. Mm-hmm. It means we have to sit in our pain. It means we have to lean into it. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just get back to normal. Mm-hmm. But nothing will ever be the same norm mm-hmm. um, as it was before your loved one died. Right. Um, and so it is. It is, you know, it's, I think for some, it is that they don't understand grief. Maybe they've never walk through it before so they don't understand how it affects you holistically Mm -hmm. i mean grief is very physical so people don't understand why why is it that i can't find my keys every day Mm -hmm. or why is it i have a headache that just won't go away Mm -hmm. or my sleep pattern has changed i just can't go to sleep at night that's grief you know or um why is it that I can't seem to communicate anymore with my daughter because she is she's acting and responding this way and I'm acting and responding this way? Maybe she's moved on. Mm. 
or maybe, you know, it's just not affecting her. So there's just not a lot of communication about it. We just continue to go on. Mm-hmm. So someone, a family, for instance, that you say, this is a family that's grieving well. What, what does that process look like? A lot of communication, mm-hmm. a lot of repentance, yeah. a lot of forgiveness, mm-hmm. and a lot of grace. Yeah. But it is all in the communication. And it's in the patience and the grace of understanding that we're all going to deal with this differently. Yes. So when I was doing my residency in Atlanta um, at Grady Hospital, it was a trauma one unit. And um, my first night there was in the ER and it was a full moon and it was a Friday night and it was rainy. And the only advice that the chaplain gave me that night was don't stand by the door if a doctor gives a death pronouncement. And he said, because you're going to be run over. I was like, what do you mean by that? He said, Within a room, when a death pronouncement is done, could be one family, you're going to see someone who's totally silent. You're going to see someone who may throw up. You're going to see one, someone that screams and mourns so very loud. You're going to see someone who may faint. See someone that, you know, punches a hole in the wall. But you always have a runner. You always have someone who just wants to get out of that room and run away from the news that they just heard. And so I have learned, okay, well, I was really glad (laughs) he told me that. And there was a night that I got run over because he was absolutely right. In a family, there's always different responses. And so if there are different responses, then there's also different ways that we're going to internalize things and think about things. And so communication is such a huge, mm-hmm. a huge piece of that. And not judging. Okay, well, you're not necessarily crying all the time. Then that must mean that you don't miss dad exactly. as much as I do because I am crying all the time. So I'm going to cast judgment now on that. And I'm not going to talk to you about that. I'm going to let that wall build. And then it's all of a sudden this wall is here. And we don't even know why it's here. Right. When my dad died three years ago, that's one of the things that my grief looked different than I'm, I wasn't one that, I mean, tears were there, but probably not. That just wasn't my means of grief. It looked different for me. And I can remember my youngest daughter saying, Daddy, why, why don't you cry more? And, and I said, well, I, I'm, I'm grieving, but it just doesn't look like that. They look different. And so I think that's part of the reason that people feel as though either they're doing it wrong or they're not doing it right. And they put it in a category, well, it has to look like this. And, and so grief has a a different time frame. It has a different way of manifesting over the long haul. Um, And so, you know, we, we're not willing to just communicate to talk about that to understand that. And therefore we tend to just be runners and let's just not deal with it. And I think that's what we experience oftentimes. Absolutely. So my friends, if you're along or around me long enough, I'm going to make you mad by this statement at some point in our lives is with grief, you have to lean in. Yes. You can't go around it. Yes. You got to go through through it it. and you got to lean into it. And they're like, well, what does lean in mean? Well, it means something different for you than it does to me. But I can tell you grief 
is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Healing comes not by going around something. Healing happens when we lean in and God meets us in a way that we have possibly never met him before, mm-hmm. a new attribute of him, learning about, you know, maybe I've watched um, my grandmother and my grandfather and my mom and dad grieve like this because they grieve like that because they were taught by their parents. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to do it differently mm-hmm. this time. I'm going to lean in and I'm going to feel. Yes. And it's going to hurt. Yes. And there are going to be things I don't understand. And I may, may shake my fist mm-hmm. and I may be angry and that's okay. Yes. You know? Yeah, there's no, there is no um, bypass. There's none. And I will tell you, the people who do that, they get stuck. And, um, and I've been there. I mean, I've tried to go around it myself with my own suffering in my own life. And you do get stuck. And then you realize, I didn't heal. What does it look like for somebody to be stuck? Hmm. That's a good question. The only way I can explain it is that sitting with someone and they're sharing their story of their loss, and when they're done sharing it, they tell me it was something that was 13 years ago, and it is still so raw. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's good. Or it's someone who tells me, you know, I've, I experienced the loss of my grandparent. And I've now experienced the loss of maybe a friend or a, a spouse. And now all of a sudden I'm experiencing something and going back to the death of my grandparent. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? Well, maybe there were things in that season that you tried to go around it. Mm-hmm. You didn't lean into it. Mm-hmm. And and now we're going to grieve the death of your grandparents. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes it looks like pure rage and anger. Um, sometimes it looks like totally walking away from the church, mm-hmm. walking away from family, other relationships. I think me and you can agree that when we talk to people that are in crisis or marriages that are in crisis, if we really got down to the heart of it, some of that brokenness is going to come from a time of a, of a loss, maybe not just of a loved one, but a loss in their life that they didn't heal from. And now it's just built upon and again and again. So complicated grief is a word for it or compounding grief. It's just, you know, maybe we didn't heal and experience, um, experience the healing that can come from sitting with it yeah. and sitting with that pain. I'll often say um, wounds can't be healed unless they're made known, unless they're revealed. Bring things out of the dark. You know, and, and, until the they're named, until they're seen. Right. And, and, and I think that that's the very process that people say it's hard and it requires an emotional cost for me and it it's messy and, Yes. And my emotions may move from deep, deep sorrow to anger and rage all within the same day, maybe the same moment. But that is actually what you have to do to move through it. 
Absolutely. In a healthy way. And I will say, I don't want people to think that if you're 10 years, 12 years, 14 years down the line, and you're sharing a story of someone you have lost, especially a child, Mm -hmm. or especially an accident, Mm -hmm. and there's that rawness, that doesn't mean you're stuck. Yeah. It means that you love that person tremendously. You know, I'm really careful with cliches. I know there are so many things that are out there that people say that are hurtful. And that's one thing that I warn families about Mm -hmm. is to be prepared for some of that. And then that's when we offer grace Mm -hmm. when someone says something because they're intentionally trying to help. Because we feel like we have to say something. Absolutely. Um, But, you know... One of the things that I say, and it probably does sound cliche, but I absolutely mean mean it, is there would be no grief if it was no love. Yes. And so, you know, for people who still feel this tremendous loss 14 years later, that means that there was love there. Mm -hmm. And that that person can never be replaced. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, you know, people will say, Amy, does this get better Does this pain go away? Does this grief go away? And I'll be honest, I was like, it will change. It doesn't necessarily go away. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times um, grief is like a wave, Mm -hmm. you know, and it just ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's like an ambush, you know, especially in the holidays. Mm -hmm. You're walking through the mall or a store and you hear a sound or you smell something, and it is all of a sudden the emotions come flushing in because you're reminded of a memory that there was love centered in the middle of it mm-hmm. and that that person's no longer there. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it changes over the years, but it doesn't minimize the love mm-hmm. when it changes. Oh, that's so good. You mentioned um, as we enter the holidays, um, this is uh, – very, very unique time mm-hmm. of maybe in our lifetimes, maybe within the last hundred years of experiencing the loss, um, the, the spectrum of loss from the normalcies being changed during the holidays, uh, maybe not even being able to see our loved ones, uh, to people who have experienced the death of a loved one, they haven't been able to be physically present with them um, because of COVID. Uh, maybe their loved one has died of COVID and just all that goes with that. Um, this is a very, very unique time and a very unique season. So as we enter into this season, what are some practical tools that that you could help us with um, that would be something that would prepare us that would um, if we're sitting down with someone who has experienced loss and we know the holidays for whatever reason they bring a magnifying glass to that what are some tools that you would help us with you know first that acknowledging that it's going to be different Mm -hmm. acknowledging that um, traditions are going to change we were talking, I was talking to a couple of people in the lobby today about traditions. You know, traditions are important because they connect us to the past, they ground us in the present, and they give us hope for the future. They remind us of people that we love and memories, and it also allows us to have some control mm-hmm. in a very chaotic time. Um, so acknowledging that 
those traditions are going to change. Um, and that love doesn't change for the individual. Um, and so we keep those traditions open-handed. Um, you know, we acknowledge that um, it's not going to be perfect, but both me and you know, or anyone who's listening, no Christmas is perfect, right? As much as we try to create the perfect no hallmark Christmas, it's not going to be perfect because we're humans right. and stress happens. Um, so acknowledging it's not going to be perfect. Um, I think for those who have lost loved ones in the midst of, of COVID, either with COVID or not with COVID, you're experiencing, period, your first holiday, your first Christmas. Um, and so acknowledging how with your family, these traditions are going to change. We're not going to pretend and we're not going to choose to numb it mm-hmm. because that's often what we do. That's good. As the fear is coming, we go down two of those paths. And so we're not going to pretend, we're not going to numb, and we're going to choose to communicate. What are some ways that we can honor our loved one mm-hmm. who is not here? Um, you know, if it is keeping a, a chair empty at the table and a picture up of your loved one, if you can come together for those that can't come together, which adds a level to grief and loss, you know, we've talked about having zoom parties and um, I have one family that is doing this. Um, they are going to all bring a favorite picture of the grandfather who died and they're going to share their favorite story mm. and everyone's going to eat their meal around whatever table they're at. And then they're going to share their favorite picture and story, of their grandfather. And I thought, that's a great idea. Um, and so just, again, communicating with family. Um, I will encourage people to be prepared for those hard conversations. You know, one of the sad things I think um, a griever, someone who has lost a loved one, realizes is that people don't know how to treat me. And I have to teach people how to respond to me. So important. And so um, I will encourage families or for someone who has lost a loved one to write a letter to their families um, or even to friends, their coworkers saying, hey, you know, I know you know that I've lost whoever it is. These are some things that I'm feeling, but then giving your family permission to say the name of your loved one. I have a a um, lady um, who I love tremendously who has lost many people in the last several years. And she said, my family just didn't want to say the names of those people who died. And she said, I had no clue how harmful and hurtful that was. And she said, if I had just told them, please say their names and it's okay if I cry. Don't feel like you have to say something to make it better. But let's not pretend that they're not here. Mm-hmm. You know, let's remember them. So again, those conversations. Um, you know, it's okay not to put up a full Christmas tree. It's okay not to put up all of the lights. It's okay not to spend X amount of money this year. Um, just knowing that you just may do things a little bit differently this year, Mm -hmm. then maybe next year you do put up the Christmas tree. Um, So know what you can and can't do. And a lot of times you don't know that till you're in the middle of it. And so if you're trying to put up the Christmas tree and trying to put up the lights and it's too painful, stop. Mm -hmm. 
don't feel like you have to continue to go on. Or if that is an important tradition for your family, ask people to join you. Mm-hmm. You know, come join me in doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I think just the, um, the rhythm, if you will, of, of that is um, communication, talking about it, um, not feeling like you have to hide those things, not feeling like you have to create the elephant in the room. Um, but also what I'm hearing is the importance of relationships, community, mm-hmm. having others that can walk through this together. Absolutely. And the power of that. And I'll learn that individually myself as a student, as an adolescent, my parents were a part of an amazing small group. And I watched that small group care for my parents. And then I myself was a part of an amazing small group coming through junior high and high school. And I got to experience what biblical community looked like. Both me and you know, and a lot of people who are listening to this, that healing and care happens best when it's in community, yes. that we are not created to walk this journey alone. We're not created to carry the burden of grief alone, you know, and so to do it with one another. Um, and I think knowing um, that we don't have to sleep through the holidays, that we don't have to. I know a lot of people would want to sleep through Thanksgiving to January the 1st right. and wake up and just go on. Mm-hmm. But to know that healing can take place at Christmas. Christmas is really, if we think about it, it's the holiday for sufferers. Mm -hmm. It's the holiday for those who are broken and are grieving. Because if it wasn't for sadness and grief and death and isolation and loneliness and depression and whatever else, there wouldn't even be Mm -hmm. a need for Christmas. Mm And so Christmas can be such an amazing time for healing if we take out everything else that prevents us from seeing truly the the meaning, mm-hmm. you know, of Christmas. Yeah, and, and and in that context of community, helping people to understand that there is power and presence. Oh yes. Of of I'm I'm with you, and that's ultimately what we celebrate at Christmas. Yes. With us. God with us. Yeah. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's made his presence known among us. Yeah. He's he's lived the life. Um, he's understood, as Hebrews says, he is our great high priest who's understood our suffering. And so as we can embody that with others, the power of presence that we don't have to feel the pressure to do or say mm-hmm. or um get frozen by I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um it's just I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. And I'll even give you a warning mm-hmm. for anyone out there who, and I struggle with this, y'all. I'm the main one that will say things I shouldn't say. Mm-hmm. If we begin to have a conversation with someone and we start the statement with, well, at least, you know, you're going down the wrong path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just again, knowing that you don't have to have. The perfect word, you know? For instance, well, at least. Um, at least you're young and can try to have another baby. Mm. At least you're young and can 
remarry. Um, at least your loved one is a believer and is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's truth to that, right. isn't that? Absolutely. There's amazing truth. But the reality is, yes, they are in heaven, mm-hmm. but gosh darn it, I want them here. Exactly. And they're not here. Right. You know, at least you had 50 great years of marriage. I wanted 51. Right. I wanted 61. I wanted 71, you know? And so, yeah, those at least statements, mm-hmm. as meaningful as they are, they can be hurtful, right. you know? And so, again, that's where for the one who is grieving, okay, we give them grace mm-hmm. because we understand this is messy. Mm-hmm. This is really messy. I will encourage grievers to have a statement um, because you do have to be prepared. And that is one thing with the holidays um, is to be prepared, but then to be flexible and, you know, and some of the changes that can happen. And so I will encourage people to have a statement um, Something like this, you know, so people give advice. I mean, it's just, it's what we do. Um, We want to fill space, and especially when things are messy. And so I encourage people to say, you know, when advice is given to them, to use the statement of, um, you know, I'm listening, and I really appreciate that you care about me and are giving this advice to me. but I'm going to consider it and then do what is best for me and my family. Mm-hmm. That shows respect. Mm-hmm. Um, that allows you to have some control mm-hmm. because grief, gosh, if anything it reveals mm-hmm. is that we have lost all control. Mm-hmm. And so we do need to be able to have some skills in our toolbox, mm-hmm. some resources that we can have so that we feel when things are out of control that we we do have some things that we can say or thing resources that we can use to feel that we have, you know, at least some strength in this. Maybe not control, but at least I feel a little bit more strong when I'm going into a family setting or going into, you know, a community setting. Well, Amy, that you, uh, you are a powerful person in the lives of others and you are on the front line and you are seeing this um, day in and day out and you're, um, you're seeing suffering firsthand. Um, just as we, we close here, what, what are the things that keep you, um, keep, keep you at a place that, um, that you stay, uh, what, what, Self-care, for lack of a better term. How do you, how do, you do that? Hmm. That's a great question. One, being in community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, there are times that, you know, it is overwhelming. But the reason why I can do this is because of hope. Mm-hmm. And that I acknowledge I have to acknowledge on a daily basis that death is our enemy and that it is awful and it is sad and there's righteous anger that can be a part of it and it is devastating, but there is hope. Mm -hmm. And that as a believer, that I grieve with hope, not like those that don't have it. Um. And so really that hope does allow me to get up in the morning knowing that I may face some of the most 
horrific deaths that day, but not just death, the grief and that valley of the shadow of death, which a lot of times for me is what keeps me up at night. It isn't the death itself, but it is the grief of those loved ones that follow. Um, and so I do, I have to be in God's word. I have, because that's the only way I can remember true hope. Because we've talked about everyone has hope of something. But what is true hope? All those other things are going to fail me. And so to be in the power of God's word, remembering what true hope looks like. And it came in the form of an amazing little baby who lived <laughs> the perfect life and died the death that we deserve to give us hope of eternity. And so that is, that is what I focus on. Um, you know, I, I spend time with my family, with my friends, um, in those moments that it f- frightens me. I just have to remember that hope mm-hmm. because it's going to hit us all one way or another. Right. It's going to be there. That's right. And so as we enter into this Christmas season, um, my hope would be that, that there would be individuals that would listen to this podcast that would hear uh, your journey, hear your story, um, but ultimately would live in hope during this season that um, – Emmanuel has come. God is with us. He he has uh, embodied uh, within our grief. He is he is embodied into our world, and we're not alone. And um, and you, Amy, are a um, representation of that mm. in the world. And I'm very very thankful for you. I'm thankful for your ministry. Uh, I'm thankful how uh, God has used you uh, to impact so many people. And uh, you are blessing to our church your blessing to our church and so i um if anyone's listening to this podcast um would also know that um at some level um you know we have ministries here at fellowship for that very purpose and for that very reason of helping people to journey through that whether that's through a formal group process or individually uh someone like yourself who is a resource just to talk with someone individually and say what you're experiencing is normal. That's a part of grief. And, and, uh, we have people here in our body that do that very, very well. And, uh, Amy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, (laughs) I know that this, um, this podcast is going to be helpful for, uh, people who are struggling with, uh, loss as we enter this season. Thank you. I'm glad to do it. Thank you for joining us today on the Story Form Podcast. For more information about Fellowship Bible Church in Jackson, you can visit us at fellowshipjackson.com. Join us next time as we enter into the story of others together.